Hi, my name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode of the Heart Podcast by Dr. Amitava Banerjee from the Farr Institute of Health Informatics Research, University College London. In this episode of the podcast, Ami and I get deeply into risk prediction. What does it mean? What are the current methods of doing risk prediction? How can we improve it? And what might risk prediction look like in 2020? Be sure to subscribe, comment, like, share this podcast. I hope you enjoy it and do tune in next time. Podcasts are now released on a two-weekly schedule. Without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Ami Banerjee. Ami, many thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, James. Ami, you've recently written an editorial in Heart, uh, which is entitled, provocatively I think, Predicting the Future of Cardiovascular Risk Prediction. Can you uh, give us a little bit of background about cardiovascular risk prediction? And in particular, what are the current ways of predicting heart attacks and strokes? What what current tools do we have available to us? Yeah, th- thanks very much, James. So I think it's hard to talk about uh, risk prediction without uh, mentioning the Framingham study, which has influenced so much of what's happened in uh, modern cardiology research and practice. So really, that was the first cohort study that um, looked at risk factors and outcomes on a large scale. And since then, there have been a lot of similar studies in America and around the world, which have basically tried to um, use use risk factors to um, develop scores and then validate those scores in different populations. So in the UK, your listeners will be familiar with the, the QRISC or the QRISC2 tools, for example, um, which are developed in much the same way. And really, I think from the research perspective, we've, we've had a similar approach of epidemiological cohort study, then um, derivation of score validation in, in the real world. And then we're always on the hunt for uh, incremental improvements, whether it's via biomarkers or imaging uh, markers, or more recently uh, using genetic predictors as well. So that's how the research has progressed till date, I think. And most of the methods that you've just mentioned uh, really are designed for predicting first heart attack, what we might call incident cardiovascular disease. But in your editorial, you, you talk about perhaps a more relevant and more difficult problem of predicting recurrent events. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's right, because a lot of the the research and practice of prevention has has tried to focus on um, the people who haven't yet had their heart attack. We often forget that there's a major, if not the major burden in in terms of people who've had heart attacks who go on to have further heart attacks. So we we have not looked as much for prediction tools and management strategies in people who have recurrent uh, disease. So the paper which my editorial was referring to was developed, has developed a score and validated it, um, the PREDICT CBD score for um, secondary prevention, if you like, preventing recurrent uh, heart attack events. Okay, and that's the, that's the PREDICT CBD score, and we'll put a link to the paper by Pope et al. Uh, in the show notes. 
Uh, I guess one provocative question is, uh, what's the importance of, of predicting recurrent events if everybody should be on decent secondary prevention medication? I, I think that's a that's not necessarily prov- provocative. It's very relevant. That um, This is a very much ongoing debate. Uh, I guess it's um, analogous to the polypill debate, really, whether we should have a a one-size-fits-all approach for everybody who's had a heart attack or whether there are certain people who are more at risk who we should be focusing our attention on maybe tailoring our therapy to. One thing that we know, James, is that, uh, that for example, adherence or persistence to the drug therapy, even the simplest drug therapy, is very poor one year and um, further on uh, after a heart attack. And so if we could focus on the really high-risk people, for example, at trying to get their adherence or persistence better and try and highlight those people using risk prediction tools such as the Predict CVD tool, that would be, I think, a major quality improvement. And you briefly mentioned there the, the different, shall we say, technical ways of deriving some of these scores, uh, framing and focusing mainly on multivariate regression approaches, Cox hazard ratios, etc., eventually giving way to an equation which can be used in the clinic uh, by clinicians. Uh, what about some of the newer ways that are being discussed in the literature, such as adding in imaging biomarkers? We've all seen the MESA study papers using coronary calcium and potentially uh, adding in, as you said, uh, biomarkers, troponins, that kind of thing. Do you think these uh, higher dimensional uh, modalities add anything to risk prediction or is it really often the basic very simple framing and score that's just as good as anything else so i, I would say that from studies such as um, the interheart study and more more recent analyses of the population attributable attributable risk of the different risk factors which contribute to myocardial infarction we we know that it's mostly accounted for by the traditional risk factors um, so I think the the added uh, clinical value of those um, novel risk factors, if I may call them that, um, whether it's imaging or um, biomarkers, is likely to be um, in in the personalization of risk prediction and is likely to be relatively um, small, I'd say. But it's all, it's all very much dependent, James, on how well linked those resources are at the kind of patient clinician interface so if the imaging and um, data and the biomarker data are linked to a, a, a setting where they're computed into the score then um, then there's every reason to use that data what we often find is that there's different systems that uh, that use different uh, data so it's, it's, it's um, you know a, a matter of whether the clinician has time to use that tool. So clinical utility is very, very important. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I completely agree. We've just got a, a new electronic health record system in Cambridge over the last few years, which does in fact bring all that data together into the clinic, which I find really helpful. Um, are you able to, to finish off by perhaps talking about, again, a provocative statement you make in your uh, in your editorial when you discuss um, real-time readout of risk, should we say, within ele- an electronic health record? Is that something that's going to feature, do you think, as we as we move into the uh, towards 2020? 
Re- really, um, we, at the moment, we've unfortunately got a, a divide in between research risk prediction and clinical risk prediction. And research is trying to find ever higher um, areas under the curve and um, better discrimination of the risk predictors. And, and uh, yeah, in the clinical setting, I want a score that is as easy to use as possible. And I think that in the so-called learning health system where you have um, better connected electronic health records, we need that data to be um, analysed in real time. And actually that was more relevant to the the patient and the patient cohort that probably you're seeing in your clinic or I'm seeing in mine than one that might have been developed and derived in a different population in a different country. Um, and also with with these kind of systems, there is the opportunity to um, have advanced analytics and, for example, machine learning such that you don't have to use the same uh, technique, whether it's Cox regression or linear regression or logistic regression. You don't have to have the same one for each patient um, cluster or um, cohort. Um, we've we've assumed that there is a one size fits all for risk prediction, but that may not be the case. And in the era of um, personalization and precision medicine, um, we should maybe be moving the way we derive these scores and validate them into the 21st century. I completely agree. Ami, uh, I want to thank you very much indeed for taking part in the podcast. I will put links to your editorial and also the excellent paper by Pope and colleagues in the show notes for everybody to see and uh, tune in again for the next episode of the podcast. <laughs>